there have been reports predicting with scary accuracy the amount of CO2 emissions we'd have in the atmosphere since the 80s. But why were they buried for so long? Why is there so much propaganda around renewable energy, supply chains, and batteries that lead people to question the technology, which is a huge part of what's going to save us? And in the doom and gloom, how can we stay optimistic? Big questions that we're deep diving in today with Asad Razouk, a Lebanese-British clean energy entrepreneur, investor, commentator, and host of the Angry Clean Energy Guy podcast. It's time to live wide awake. Hey, it's Steph Dixon, and welcome to the Live Wide Awake podcast. This is a podcast about climate change and consciousness, sustainability and spirituality. Each week, a special concoction for your listening pleasure so that you can lead your most conscious life. We're going to be talking about fascinating yet sometimes complicated topics and breaking them down into digestible chunks so that we can live wide awake. If you haven't already, do hit that subscribe button. And if you love what you're hearing, consider supporting us on Patreon. I first had the pleasure of meeting Asad Razouk at a friend's place for dinner. I was instantly intrigued by his sharp wit and commentary and deep understanding of climate change and the issues surrounding it. Afterwards, I became one of the biggest fan of his podcast, The Angry Clean Energy Guy, where he rants about things that makes him angry, but also helps to remove all of the noise and confusion around some of the biggest issues of today. Assad is a CEO of a couple of companies building and operating renewable energy projects around Asia and also looking to digitize renewable energies, among many other things. He's a high-profile thought leader on climate change, clean energy, and the UN Climate Talks with more than 138,000 followers on Twitter, 100,000 on Facebook, and 135,000 on LinkedIn. Today, we're talking about the information fog finally lifting, the clean energy revolution, why we need to be more aware of the propaganda, and why optimism is the only way forward. Asad, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to deep dive into our conversation. Let's start with you sharing your high-level overview of this year and where you think we're at a global stage with the climate crisis. Stephanie, it's good to be here. Thank you. Look, I think things are looking up after coronavirus because the fact that we or the fact that we're all getting asphyxiated through that virus means that the consciousness around clean air, for example, has gone up. And what we've seen is we've seen definitive, I think, moves to actually build back greener. Just in Asia, for example, over the past five weeks, you saw that China went for carbon zero by 2060. Japan followed right behind it with carbon zero by 2050. Then South Korea tagged along also with carbon zero at 2050. And these are very, very big, very significant moves in the context of the climate crisis, especially if you flash back just one year when Asia really was on its way to fry the rest of the planet. So I'm actually very encouraged at the moment with the progress of the climate agenda. Having said that, of course, emissions are still going up and there is enormous things to do. And the U.S. election, which as we record this episode, still hangs in the balance, will also matter greatly. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been a very interesting year, that's for sure. But I'd like to zoom back now and kind of go back uh, a couple of decades and really talk a little bit about the information fog that we've been living through in the last few decades. And this is something that you've mentioned or cited a few times in your work. And I just wanted to kind of go back and understand where did things get so murky and confusing and how is it that big oil has really been deceiving us for so long? Well, the deception really has had two dimensions, right? The first is the lying. And the second is the shifting of responsibility on us, the consumer and the citizen. And this has basically, this basically started in the early 80s. In 1984, famously, if you are in my space, Exxon Mobil specifically had a, an internal scientific paper which very clearly laid out what would happen if oil and gas continued producing at the rhythm that it was expected to and projected emissions in 2019, so just a year ago, pretty much exactly where they ended up in terms of CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere. But then what happens post 1984 is the interesting bit. And all of this, by the way, is public information because it was all outed by a couple of media outlets two years ago. So what happened after 1984 is they then deliberately, effectively buried that information and instead emerged with a strategy to confuse and deflect and push back against any link between burning oil, gas, and coal and a worsening climate scenario, a worsening climate outlook for, for the rest of us. And that was done by throwing an enormous money at it, which is estimated today at about a billion dollars over the last three years, for example. I think if you research it, what you'll see is that just five or six oil majors spent $200 million each just on obfuscating the, the truth. The way they do that is very subtle. So for example, you have fake think tanks that are set up, fake consumer groups that are set up. You have pushback across communication outlets. You have politicians that are influenced, etc. And the playbook is really right out of, right out of the, the tobacco company's playbook when it first came out that smoking is bad for you. And the result of all that was quite nefarious because it was invariably to push back progress on clean technology, airlines being a perfect example. And to confuse the consumer and make them feel like it was their fault because they bought the plastic, because they drove the gas guzzling car, because they took the flight, because they eat beef. All of which are really devices to ensure that oil and gas companies do nothing and that we feel guilty and try to do something. And of course, we fail than to move the needle and therefore they are able to continue selling us their product. Let me come back to the airline industry very briefly. What happened in the airline industry is very interesting because effectively over 40 years, we could have developed electric aircraft much faster than we have. But in reality, we developed 
almost no electric aircraft. And part of the reason was because the nobody invested in the R&D necessary to do so because of that obfuscation from oil and gas. Whereas if you flash forward to today, I think globally there are over 100 startup electric plane companies and we will solve the airline and the flight problem in terms of emissions by basically flying clean planes within a decade or 15 years at the most. But that's 15 years beyond what we could have achieved otherwise. Yeah. And this is, I guess, what really baffles me and gets me very frustrated, you know, that all of this information has been known. And as you said, you know, it's just been pulled over. Blame has been shifted back to the consumer. And I read that you said, whoever named it natural gas instead of highly explosive climate change accelerating fossil fuel gas deserves a branding award. And I think it's so true. So much of this has just been very clever marketing, deceptive techniques, and, you know, focus, uh, you know, like what magicians do, right? Focusing over here while really all the problems happening over there. And I guess I'm just curious, you know, in all honesty, how has this actually gone on for quite so long? Is it really all just coming down to money and greed and power? And convenience. You know, you can't take away the fact that burning oil, gas and coal is something that we've been doing for 150 years and that people and societies are used to it. But you also have to realize the amount of money that's mobilized around it, because it's not just the burning, it's the uh, refining, it's the transport, it's then the use at the other end. We have millions of kilometers of pipelines transporting the stuff. We've got multi-billion dollar refineries, petrochemical plants. The infrastructure and the vested interests in the space are enormous. That wall of money basically defended itself more or less to the death, using all the tools at its disposal, including propaganda, lying, and lobbying. Plastic is the other branding award. I mean, can you imagine that today we have scientific papers with titles such as human consumption of microplastics? I mean, who would have thought that we would have scientific papers talking about how we're eating and drinking and breathing plastic, right? But plastic is oil. So the word itself is manipulative in the extreme, right? It's 99% oil, but for most of us, it's a very comfortable word. And this is only changing now as people are becoming more aware of what it is. But Imagine if consumers worldwide looked at their fast fashion, for example, Steph, and saw instead of polyester made of plastic derived from crude oil and produced using harmful chemicals, including carcinogens, right? I mean, you wouldn't buy that sweater, would you? But that's not what it says. It says polyester, which is nice and comfortable, and you just buy it. And it's the same problem across the fashion industry as what we've just discussed. It's the, the branding and the perception by the consumer that this is safe. And then in the plastic area, it's also the recycling con, you know, the impression that people have that because they threw that bottle in a recycling bag, actually it's going to be recycled when in fact, nothing could be further from the truth since about 93% of global plastic has not been recycled. 
Yeah. I mean, when you get into the depth of it, it really does become very scary very quickly. And just, you know, you just feel really blindsided, but also almost naive. I think sometimes that's something that I battle with of not knowing sooner that all of this stuff was happening, but then also feeling very insignificant to actually do something about it. And I think what we've been seeing this year as well is that plastic's also been selling itself as the hero in the fight against coronavirus, but it really isn't true. And so, you know, how can we become more aware of the fact that it's the same dirty dance we've been dealing with for decades? It's just trying to wear a new dress. Look, the good news, I think, is we are becoming aware, right? The the truth has come out on uh, big oil and obfuscation of uh, the climate impact of their product. Maybe it's not yet disseminated enough. And high-profile politicians that defend oil, gas, and coal, you know, aren't helping. But the times are changing, you know, most definitely. And I'll come back, I mean, you know, I come back to what I said earlier in this podcast, which is the, the, the announcement by, by countries like China, Japan, and South Korea in that context, you know, following on the heels of the EU that's already announced a net carbon zero strategy is actually huge because net carbon zero or a carbon free society does trickle down across all these sectors. It's electricity, but it's also transportation, it's buildings, it's fashion, it's plastics, it's airlines, and it's shipping, for example, you know. So the consequences are are huge. It's going to take us a bit of time to adjust and get there. And we have to keep getting the truth out about all these products and pushing back against propaganda such as the plastic industry pretending that it was the hero of the coronavirus crisis, when in fact that's just false, until we get there. So in fact, the fight is is certainly not over, and it will last another decade or 15 years until all of that actually becomes embedded in our societies and we push back. I mean, buying SUVs is is another very good example of something that people are still doing today when in fact they really must stop. But I think you'll see SUV growth stop pretty soon. It just hasn't yet. And we're going to come back to the vehicle situation, but I guess looking, you know, you said that this will be shifting in 10 to 15 years. So what do you think that's going to look like in the future? What are we, what kind of world will we be in as these things are all going on the decline? It's certainly not happening fast enough, but we are seeing, you know, the long-term trajectory that these things are going down, that renewables are going up, that, you know, what's it going to look like in that, in that decade to come? Well, it's shifting now. Right, and it's shifting now around the world, and effectively, what you can expect is, you know, one of the fastest, probably deepest, you know, quite profound disruptions of the energy sector in 150 years, because we're probably going to start with the energy sector, and what will happen is that the combination of solar power, wind power, and batteries will continue to get cheaper and eventually will generate pretty much 100% of the electricity that we need. And then that will trickle down into the hydrogen space, for example, which will allow us to make you know things like clean steel, but also to fly electric aircraft. And as we do that, the price of 
environmental pollution hopefully will increase because people will be a lot more aware of it. And if it does, plastic, for example, will start to recede from our lives. Because, you know, to put it simply, if a manufacturer of plastic was obligated to build the recycling infrastructure that's needed to deal with their plastic, then the price of plastic would go up. And if it goes up enough, it will be replaced. So you've got to combine effectively citizen and consumer efforts, as well as government efforts, with market signals in order to change all that behavior across the board. That's roughly what it's going to look like. And what will happen is that the coal and the gas assets will become increasingly stranded. And as people lose uh, money in these sectors, they'll shift them. And then that will just accelerate the transformation. So I would expect an acceleration really from um, from now, even compared to some of the most optimistic forecasts of that transformation. Mm. And, you know, you I'm an avid listener of your podcast, obviously, as you know, and uh, you often talk about moving the money. So maybe you can also unpack a little bit more about how we can actually play a part in that and why it's so important as part of this shift that we're going to be seeing, or I mean, that's already started, but that we're going to see even more in the next, in the years to come. Well, you know, that's kind of pretty straightforward, right? If money was expensive to oil and gas, you would have less oil and gas, right? Because they will explore less, they will bring less resources to the rest of us, and they will therefore be able to do less in general. And then that money will find a home elsewhere, including in clean energy. And the the market signals, which were, I would say, confused until recently, you know, have become much clearer, for example, this year, just the impairment or, or the losses in oil and gas around the world, you know, has been in um, the hundreds of billions and the amount of money that's being wasted in that industry has become clearer. Stock prices also have been quite indicative. Indicative. You would have read that for the first time in 100 years, a, the largest renewable energy producer in the world, a US utility called Next Era, has exceeded the market value of Exxon, for example, for the first time about a month ago. And so the money is moving. And when it does, what will happen is that as the money becomes more expensive for oil and gas, they will have less ability to, for example, build petrochemical plants to manufacture more plastic. They will have less ability to explore the Arctic or even any new exploration of oil and gas. And then the rest of us will adjust by effectively producing alternatives. And your Conscious Festival, for example, which hosts alternatives to oil-based products across the consumer sector, will, I would expect, become much more, uh, much better attended by brands that are doing a lot more of what at the moment only some marginal brands are doing. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's all shifting in the right way and it, it'll be exciting to see kind of what comes up next. So while we've been seeing an amazing 
clean energy revolution and we're actually seeing the cost of renewable energy dipping below big oil. This is great news. We're also, you know, seeing a bigger movement and shift towards electrification. And so I'd love to touch on electric vehicles. And there really, again, is a lot of propaganda around this issue, you know, talking about EVs from the batteries to the supply chain to the impact they're actually having. And so I guess where is that all really stemming from and what can we sort of do about it? Because I think there was a recent podcast episode episode, you talked to the, there was even kids citing some of this propaganda. And so if it's already reached that generation and they're not seeing the light yet, uh, what can we do to sort of help navigate in the correct direction for this? It's all coming. Look, there is an incredible amount of new noise. You're absolutely right. Directed against solar, wind and batteries. So years ago, the criticism was intermittency. It was uh, wind turbines go, wind turbines kill birds. Uh, you know, it was a lot of uh, flimsy, basically criticism, which you know is just simply not not correct. At the moment, the standard objection to clean energy and electrification is that, oh my God, what are we going to do with all these solar panels and wind turbines and batteries at the end of their lives? And what about the mining practices of manufacturing all these batteries and solar panels and wind turbines and rare earth metals that come with that and all that? And that is just, it's another form of kind of out of context criticism, which, uh, isn't very substantive and I think must be pushed back against. What we'll see in my in my next podcast, by the way, on the angry clean energy guy, Stephanie, is you'll see the the, the whole a whole episode on just this topic. And the, the crux of it is uh, really very simple. When you criticize the mining practices involved in batteries, so cobalt or some of their components, or wind turbines. So for example, the wind turbines criticism is what are we going to do with them when we don't need them anymore at the end of their lives? Where are we going to bury them? Why can't we recycle them, etc.? What you'll actually see is that the green industry by and large is built from very different DNA from the oil, gas and coal industry. The DNA fundamentally is very different and it's very different in a very specific way. The oil and gas and coal industry never really cared about its externalities and its pollution and never really built the infrastructure around it to protect from that pollution. So for example, when an oil company today goes bankrupt, you're left with everything that they've done, emitting gases and leaking effectively for decades. This industry, by contrast, under the hood at the moment, but you'll see it more and more publicly, is developing complete recycling and I mean 100% recycling strategies across solar panels, 100% recycling strategies around wind turbines, and 100% strategies around recycling strategies around batteries, which means that we will use less material than we're anticipating. We will recycle all of it in a circular economy approach, and it will be all done in a safe environmental way. On mining, 
Mining, of course, can be very controversial because you sometimes mine in countries where there are no robust rules and regulations that govern your mining. And we've been doing that for 150 or 200 years, right? Mining is an industry that repeatedly breaches safety, environmental, but also human rights norms and uh, child labor norms and, you know, you name it. However, once again, the green industry by and large is paying much greater attention to mining practices. And what it's doing is a, is a massive improvement over what the rest of the mining industry is doing. Once again, because it's DNA, it's different. It's DNA is about actually watching its entire environmental, social, and human rights footprint. And the signs across that industry are actually very promising from that perspective. I think we will do things much, much better than they have ever been done before. Which sounds very hopeful, which is great, especially given everything we've been going through this year. It's nice to have some hope for the future and for this clean energy revolution. But I have a question, you know, what do you say to people or, you know, maybe there's people you've had to engage in conversations with that are still citing the propaganda or don't believe that our individual actions matter or that, you know, they're just one person, like, what does it matter? All of this kind of rhetoric that I think a lot of, at least my community always asks, you know, how do we actually have the tough conversations with people that just don't believe or don't want to change? And what do you think is the best way to do that? Or what do you do when you're faced with those conversations or, you know, climate deniers or even people just citing propaganda? You know, first of all, I think we should be encouraged by the fact that there is less and less of it, because what it's about really is it's about information coming out from under a lid that it was, uh, that was effectively built by an industry where that information was detrimental to their profit purpose, right? So that information is coming out. There is an enormous, enormously more information than there was even two years ago about all these aspects that we're discussing. And so I think the first point of any conversation is uh, facts, but also, you know, this topic is also emotive for uh, many people. And you've got to be careful, I think, with emotive conversations, because facts on their own may not be enough. And the emotive side really has got to come down to impact on people, for example, as opposed to impact on things or animals. So you have to always try and push the conversation towards the clear impact on, on people because people, you know, many, many have never seen it. I mean, many have never seen the impact of coal mining on someone's skin or, or teeth or health. And so you've got to push the conversation in that direction, because once people have seen it, then they are much more aware of it. And maybe counterintuitively, the coronavirus pandemic, you know, is pushing us in the right direction, because suddenly people are a lot more conscious about being asphyxiated, and therefore a lot more conscious about clean air by extension. And this will trickle down. Uh, slowly. So look, the conversation is not always easy. 
Sometimes it's frankly impossible. You just have to hope that the weight of the information plus the weight of evidence in terms of impact on people will gradually over time change opinions and build a consensus around what we are all trying to do, which is to ensure that we have a livable planet, you know, 50 or 100 years from now. Yeah. And I'm glad you're bringing it back to that because a question I'd love to ask you next is, do you actually think that the human race will survive the next, I don't know, century? And uh, what actually keeps you going through all of this? I definitely think it will, we will survive. Yes. We will survive in one shape or another. I think we are, we have banked already some increased suffering because you have to plan on the basis that the warming vis-a-vis pre-industrial times has already, is already going to exceed two or two and a half or even three degrees centigrade. So we will have more extreme weather events, we'll have more fires, we'll have more floods, we'll have sea level rise, we will have more typhoons, more hurricanes. You know, all of these these consequences have already been banked because we have already emitted more emissions than is safe to protect from these increased climate impacts. But having said that, we are now adapting and we are moving the needle in the right direction. And what will happen is that we will invest in climate adaptation. So defenses against climate, for example, as well as transforming our societies into clean, cleaner and more fueled one. Unfortunately, there'll be a lot of suffering around the way as a consequence of our actions. However, we will survive and I think probably thrive on a 50 to 100 year view, so long as all these signs that we are discussing and that we're detecting all around us continue to gain momentum. You have to be optimistic. I think that's the only way forward and you have to continue to fight. Yeah. So that's what you do. You focus on being optimistic. Is that what gets you through sometimes? Because I mean, you're very tapped into it all, you know, a lot. You're probably having deep conversations about this, speaking at a lot of events, you know, sometimes it might must get disheartening. So what is it that keeps you going? No, you've got to refuse disheartening outcomes, basically. So that's kind of not allowed because the what's at stake is greater than effectively the sum of all of us. And you have to be optimistic and it's not difficult to be optimistic. You just have to look through the noise and and see the change that's happening on the ground all around you and then find a role to try and accelerate that change with each of us doing what they can at their own scale. And so optimism, I think, is the only way forward because otherwise you will not act effectively. Yes, I like that. It's a very nice positive note to almost wrap up on. So obviously our podcast is called Live Wide Awake. It's all around, you know, being actually very conscious and intentional with how we live our lives and understanding what's going on around us. So aside from being optimistic, what would your one tip be for um, our audience to live wide awake? Vote. That would be my one tip if it's only one that I'm allowed. So, and, and, and vote means not only at the ballot box, you know, vote at the supermarket till, vote in your car, vote with your wallet, 
vote with what you read, you know, which media organization you give money to, and certainly vote at the ballot box as well. Everybody can be a change actor. Everybody can influence the direction in which the collective travels at. And so, and that's why you basically have to be, have to maintain that optimism as you go along, because you've got that power, the power to vote. And it's an amazing, it's an awesome power. And we have to all realize it and then appreciate it and then use it. Thank you. I needed that reminder today. (laughs) Asad, I really appreciate your time. It's been wonderful speaking as always. So thank you for all your wise wedges and words of wisdom. My pleasure, Stephanie. It was great to be with you and good luck to you with everything that you do. Thank you. Three things I'm taking away from this conversation with Assad. First, the DNA is different between oil and gas and clean energy, and the technology and circularity is advancing way faster than the propaganda can keep up. Secondly, we've already locked in a certain amount of suffering from emissions that have already been banked, but we do have the ability to invest in climate adaptation. And thirdly, above all else, we have to remain optimistic. It's the only way forward and we have to continue to fight. I hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you ready to awaken. If you enjoyed today's episode, do hit that subscribe button and consider supporting us. Until next time, live wide awake.